BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to the food police and hello to peace. Welcome to the Love Food Podcast, hosted by dietitian and food behavior expert, Julie Duffy Dillon. This authentically engineered series is in the form of a love letter, welcoming you to reconnect with food. Now pour a cup of coffee or a margarita and let's begin. And welcome to episode 70 of the Love Food Podcast. I am Julie Duffy Dillon, registered dietitian and partner on your food peace journey. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for connecting today. Would you consider yourself a food addict? I have certainly spoken with many, many people over the years who would identify as one, especially if we're new to working together. And I can totally appreciate why. Every time, You bring certain foods in the house, you can't stop eating them or thinking about them or sneaking them. And then there's so much shame involved when you do. Then when they're out of sight, eventually they feel like they're out of mind and easier and things just feel so much better. If you identify with this experience, does that mean you're addicted to food and you must abstain now? I talk at length about abstaining from foods and certain support systems that encourage that kind of abstinence in episode 53 of this podcast. So check it out if you would like to further clarify that. And today I'm going to do a special rebroadcast of an episode I did back at episode six with Marcy Evans. She's a dietitian who's at the forefront of food addiction research. And I'm choosing now to rebroadcast it because... We just got through another holiday season with Easter and Passover, and I feel like the food addiction conversation tends to pop up during times of the year where there are a lot of celebrations and foods that are just known around that time of year. So there's not a lot of what I would call food habituation, and there's probably been some deprivation because how often are we actually around jelly beans? And so when we are around them, it can be really hard to stop eating them. So does that mean then we're addicted to jelly beans? That's what we're going to discuss today. And I'm really excited for you to hear it. Before we get to this episode's letter, I want to say a very special thank you to this episode's sponsor. It's the Pursuing Private Practice Masterclass eCourse. If you would like to start a private practice, this is the answer. I started my private practice back in early 2005. And I felt like I was just spinning my wheels and there were so many details 
And I had to spend so much time devoted to these details instead of really what I was wanting to do. This course gives you everything, and I wish I would have had that back then. It's 10 modules full of information for starting and growing your business and also a workbook to go along with it. If you're a dietitian, there's also continuing education. If you'd like to find out more information, just go to juliedillonrd.com slash private practice masterclass. And this special class is being held by my friend and colleague, Jennifer McGurk. And she is someone who has a group practice that she has a wealth of information. And she's also someone that has a group practice that specializes in very similar things that I do. So if you're wanting to do a similar practice that I have, where you focus on helping people with their relationship with food and using weight-inclusive methods, then this is a way for you to get that kind of started. I'm really excited for you, by the way, if you're going to do that, because it is there is a way to have a practice where you're not opting in to diet industry. And Jennifer can certainly help you with that super cool thing. I have a very special secret code that you can use at checkout to get 10% off. So when you go to juliedillonrd.com slash private practice masterclass, and you go through the checkout, use the special code B-O-S-S, boss. All right, let's go ahead and hear this episode's letter. Dear food, There's something abnormal about my eating habits. I eat healthy 70% of the time, and then bam, I'll have a binge. Ice cream, chips, Twizzlers, Nutella, you name it, I'll eat it. And not just one spoonful, but six plus spoonfuls of Nutella. Enough to make me sick. How many years have I been going through this? Too many. But really, how do I stop? I have no idea. I really have tried everything. Talking to friends, quitting cold turkey, having quote, one small sweet a day, unquote. I always think, oh, I don't care. It's just a few sweets. And then afterwards, I want to die. Food, I don't know what to do. I feel fat and ugly and disgusting. And like, I never want to do that again. But I always do. I always, always, always do. All these people think I'm so healthy that I eat perfectly. It's all a lie. It's because I hide it and I'm so ashamed. I don't want to live like that. I want to be proud of what I eat. I want to eat fruits and vegetables and nuts and grains. It doesn't matter what I do. Nothing seems to be a permanent fix. I want to change. What do I do food? To only have sweets once a week? Ideally, yes, and in moderation. But what if your best friend invites you for ice cream on a Wednesday and Friday is your dessert day? Then what do I do food? The only way to change it is to do it to plunge in, to put down the ice cream, and to walk away. I need to not give in to peer pressure, or I just don't care, or just this once, because it's never just that once. I've snuck food past more people than I can count, wiping my face so no one can see the leftover chocolate and stuffing it in the trash to hide the evidence. Literally nothing about that is healthy. I have to live with these calories from these slip-ups, I've read about food addiction and thinking that is what I am, addicted to sugar, addicted to carbs. I just need to start to commit to quit eating carbs and sugar. I just don't know how. I feel like there's no way I'm the only person dealing with this, but I also feel so alone. What do I do? Sincerely, addicted to sugar. Since the beginning of this very young podcast series, I have been explaining to you 
how eating is a very natural process in our body and how our body already knows how much to eat and it doesn't need to rely on a diet to figure out actually how much it needs for health. And rather dieting is something that is um, something that hurts our body and puts it in this place where it leads to kind of primal reactions like uh, binging and OCD experiences. I spoke about this a little bit in episode one. And so basically our bodies don't like when we diet and our body has this ability to know how to do certain things just to keep us alive. And eating is not just one of them. Um, our heart is beating. We don't have to think about it. Uh, we're able to breathe, of course, now, because we're thinking about it, it may feel weird. But in essence, there's many different systems happening and we're not judging them. There is another system that I feel is just like eating. It's kind of gross, but hang in with me for a second. I do believe eating is just like peeing. And, you know, there's certain processes that happen to let us know when we need to go to the bathroom and we just do them. And if we don't go to the bathroom, we need to go. Well, you know what happens. <laughs> but with food, it's kind of changed into this different experience, right? It's become this judgment zone. And if we eat too much or too little or not enough or too frequently, it becomes this judgment. But what if we woke up one day and said, you know, I'm only going to pee three times today. And when I pee, I'm only going to be able to pee for seven seconds. If I have to do more than that, then I am bad. I have lost control. Now, that is hilarious, right? Of course, we would never do that. And if you did, like you would have a massive bladder infection because you weren't doing what you need to do. And that bladder infection wouldn't be because of your urination obsession. It would be because you hadn't been going to the bathroom enough. So I want you to just apply that same kind of wisdom to eating because our body is set up in a similar way in that our body has these signals to let us know when we need to eat and how much we need to eat. And in a similar way, it's hilarious that we judge those feelings because they are primal and just part of how our body is wired to stay alive, to stay healthy, and to keep us alive. So this letter from Addicted to Sugar and Carbs is so very important because there is this conversation happening right now that food has this addictive quality. And I will tell you, whenever I go meet with colleagues who work in similar areas, there's many people who are on the fence and then there's other people who are very much in one corner or the other and whether or not food can be addicting. Whenever I think about the conversation about food addiction, I immediately think of my colleague and friend, Marcy Evans. She's a dietitian in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she has written many blog posts and articles on food addiction that I just find very helpful and chock full of the most recent uh, research on it. And I want to give her a call today to see if she has any insight for you addicted to sugar and carbs. And again, she is someone who's staying right on the tip of the research and has lots of, re of experiences helping people through these same steps. So we're going to give her a call.
This is Marcy. Hey, Marcy. It's Julie Dillon. How are you? I'm good. Julie, how are you doing? I am great. And I am so glad that you're willing to talk to us about this letter. Did you get a chance to read it yet? Oh my gosh. First and foremost, I want to say I am so happy to be here and um, really excited to talk about this letter. And also just want to say I'm really excited about the podcast and um, just am so such a fan of the work that you do and really feel glad to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you, Marcy. It's so sweet. Thank you. So I, yeah, absolutely. I um, did have time to read the letter. I actually read through it a couple of times and was just rereading through it. And, um, you know, it just want to say I was really struck by the emotion and feelings of desperation and shame that this letter writer feels. And that just really kind of broke my heart because um, I know that she is not alone, that what she is expressing is her own private pain, but she's also expressing something that so many people feel in their relationship to food, this this desperate, out of control, hopeless place. So I'm I'm eager to hopefully be of help to her um, as as you and I talk through this together. You're right. I I totally agree with you because what stuck out with me with this letter was that she was talking about two feelings, pride and shame. And it's so interesting to have those are such common feelings with food, but we know that food is not meant to be so like have so much power, but for so many people it does. And I agree. It's like people who are experiencing that they think they're alone, but they are totally not. Like oh, we totally. hear people every day talking about this exact same thing. Yep. Yep. That's often what I'll say to my clients is I, I often wish that they could be listening in to other, other sessions that I have because so many of the same things and feelings are talked about um, over and over and over. And I really like your observation about this sort of contrasting polarizing feelings of, of pride and shame and the way that this this letter writer is feeling in relationship to food. And, and the hope that we have is that we can help her to feel a little less moralistically about the way that she's eating to kind of neutralize her eating and, and settle some of this down. Yeah. Well, what do you think if if this letter writer was someone that you were working with, what do you think would be like the first steps to really I don't know, even feel at peace. But as I say that, I'm like, well, this letter writer was thinking that she's addicted to food and was wanting to do something like really kind of black and white with her food. And I'm going to assume that you wouldn't proceed in that manner. <laughs> yeah. You know, of course, it's always a little bit tricky going off a letter because there's yeah. there's so many questions that I would have for this person. First and foremost, I would want to offer her a ton of empathy and compassion um, that she is just giving herself such a hard time. And yet so many people struggle with food and for a lot of complicated reasons. So I would just want to just express to her, she could just be a little bit kinder with herself and a little bit more understanding that this is a complex set of things going on here and, um, and to just not rake herself over the coals. That would, that would kind of be my first intention. Um, you know, the food addiction, the question of food addiction, I understand why she is coming to this conclusion because she feels like she is caught in this loop of behaviors that no matter what she does to try to fix it, it's she keeps finding herself in the same problem. And so 
you know, I think a lot of people come to the conclusion that something is really wrong inside of them and that food addiction might be the thing that just explains, you know, this problematic eating. Um, And food addiction is something that I've thought a lot about. It's something I've read a lot about. And it's something that I've talk, I talk with my clients a lot about. Um, and, and I will say that I tend to find the food addiction model problematic for a number of reasons. And so what I would want to do with this client would be to, of course, hear a lot more about her experience and, and do a little bit of, of sharing about the limitations of the food addiction model and what pieces may or may not fit and, and see what other ways that we could go about maybe trying to work on um, her, her challenges without leaping to this idea of I'm a food addict. Right. Well, you know, I've read some of your blog posts and articles on food addiction, and that's why you were the first person that came to mind when I read this letter, because I've read about how you've explored these limitations. And I think our listeners would love to hear a few of those. I don't know if you um, would like to share some of those with us. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, you know, the idea of food addiction is is something that I've, as I mentioned, I've researched quite a bit because it's something that has really been coming up, I would say maybe over the past five years, but increasingly so. And um, so I've, I've personally felt like it's something as a nutrition therapist, I really need to to get a handle on. So what I decided to do was really try to get into the research as much as possible to get clear for myself. When we say food addiction, what does that mean and how is it defined and how has it been researched? And I learned a lot in the process. So I'll just kind of dive into this a little bit. And if at any point I'm, I'm uh, you know, maybe going on a little bit too long, Julie, you can always feel free to put <laughs> in. But, um, you know, the food addiction theory states a few things. It states that food shares common drug pathways in the brain. Um, So we see these neural pathways in the brain that are that respond to drugs and alcohol. And it's those same pathways in the brain that are responding to food. Um, We see that food activates reward systems in the brain. And um, a lot of people get fired up and worried about that. And I'll get to I'll get back to that. Um, We see that when we eat certain foods, that dopamine really gets fired up and it gets fired up in particular with um, certain types of food more so than others. Um, And that even anticipating eating activates these regions in the brain that are um, also activated when people are um, abusing drugs, illicit drugs. So that's kind of the foundations of the food addiction theory. Now, there are some limitations that I think it's really important that the listeners know about. One of the limitations is we don't actually have a working definition of what food addiction is. So researchers have not yet categorized, to my knowledge, which elements are addictive. Um, they haven't identified if the term food addiction is referring to a single substance, multiple substances. Um, does it characterize vulnerabilities within people? So sort of using this term um, as a sort of catch-all term for anyone who feels out of control with food is really a risky thing to do because it's it's really not well-defined at this point. So we don't really know what we mean when we use the term food addiction because it, it doesn't have a, de- a definition based on research. 
Another challenge with the food addiction theory is that the majority of the research has been done on animals. Now, some of that research is useful, some of it's interesting, some of it is promising. However, as many people realize, we can't just translate what we're seeing in a lab of research done on rats and and directly apply that to what we see in the world of humans. And so we can appreciate the research that's been done on animals, but making it sort of a direct correlation to what we're seeing in humans is really not how the researchers intended to go. So I would, you know, like to say, let's look at the research that's been done both in adults and as well as in animals, but not go to drawing sweeping conclusions quite yet. It's really preliminary. In fact, the majority of the research that has been done in humans has had a lot of mixed results. And a lot of the research has some some problems in the research design. So we're, in terms of the research on food addiction, it's definitely in its infancy. Now, the third thing is a little bit more subjective, and that is that often the food addiction theory fails to consider some alternative explanations for some of these neurobiological phenomenon that we're seeing. So many of the listeners have probably heard of um, Pavlovian conditioning, right? That when we're conditioned to have a certain response and we anticipate that response, it's going to happen again and again. So if we anticipate... I'm going to be out of control with this food because all of my past experiences show that's what's happened, then the likelihood of it reoccurring is, you know, it's sort of like in the cards, it's going to happen. Um, The other thing is that food is meant to be rewarding. You know, I work a lot with people with who have eating disorders and one of the really distinct differences in people who have anorexia nervosa versus the normal population who doesn't have anorexia is that they don't have the same reward system in the brain, which would encourage us to eat. If we think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, we want food to be rewarding. That's what keeps us alive, the sort of seeking food out. So I think... I really worry about the pathologizing of food being rewarding. It's meant to be rewarding. And other things that are also rewarding in in the brain in a similar way is listening to music, is laughter, is when a mom is holding her baby. And we don't tend to think of these things as addictive. And yet we see those same neural pathways also lighting up. Right. Um, yeah. I'm never like, oh, I'm so bad. I laugh too much today. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I'm completely addicted to laughing. I'm addicted to that. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> and you know, the other thing that I think is really important is that when food, and this has been shown in some really cool neurobiological research, is that when food is restrained or restricted, and then that person consumes that food, is that the pleasure centers of the brain light up even stronger than when the food isn't restrained or restrictive. So what that tells us is food becomes even more pleasurable and even more rewarding when we've been restricting ourselves from consuming it. And that is a really brilliant evolutionary process that rewards us and encourages us to not restrict our eating, but to actually pursue those things that are going to keep us alive. 
Right. So those are some of the things that I think the, the food addiction theory doesn't account for. You know, one of the most famous pieces of um, or a tool used in food addiction research is the Yale food addiction scale. And, you know, my my biggest criticism is the, that the Yale food addiction scale does not account for restraint, restriction and previous dieting. And we know from the research and I also know from my clinical experience that um, restraint and restriction and under eating and sort of saying, no, 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 is a big setup for then overdoing it. And that kind of brings me back to the, the letter that I'm looking at is this tug and pull that this letter writer is in, is this, this pattern of no, don't stop. I shouldn't bad. Um, and then, you know, swinging over to this other side and then feeling really out of control. So she's really in this tug and pull, which can create someone to feel as if they are addicted to food. Um, when in fact, there's a lot going on psychologically and emotionally that are playing into this pattern. You know, Marcy, I'm so glad to hear you say that because something that I've always wondered about the food addiction research is, are they really looking into things like restraint or dieting? Because what I see with my clients is that once they do let go of dieting, they let go of that definition of food addiction. And so that's what I was wondering with this letter writer too. I'm like, how much is it her thought about a food or her body or what she thinks she can or can't do around certain foods that's leading to this, that, that pulling that you're describing? So do you know, is, has there been any research yet that's taken out that variable or somehow included that variable or looked at it like, um, making sure that people are not dieting when they're looking at whether or not food is addicting. Do you know what? I have not come across any research. Me either. If somebody listening to this podcast has, um, let me know, inform me, please, please loop me in. I would love to look at it in terms of food addiction research. I'm not, I'm not actually aware of addiction researchers who have really, um, accounted for the restraint, restriction, and dieting history and the way that this pl plays into food patterns or eating patterns that feel addictive. Yeah, um, yeah. But I would love to know if that research is happening. There's something really interesting that you said, Marcy, that resonates a lot with what we talk about on this podcast. And it's that dieting is something that our body doesn't prefer. It's, you know, our body connects with this physiology that has been built up through evolution that when we diet, it really, as it fails, it's not really the person's body failing. It's just the person being a successful human. You know, it's just the system that's in place to protect it. And if someone is in this place like this letter writer and struggling with this kind of push and pull and thinking they're addicted to food, where do you think like they should start to to go first? Oh, that's a great question. I love what you said about being a successful human. Yeah. If people who are successful at severe restraint, um, and I know this letter writer is saying, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to eat, eat these things moderately, but you know, the idea of really being this like uber healthy eater, um, you know, I often wonder why is that? Because we're, we're really not meant to live in a restrained sort of way. Our, our natural biology rebels against that. So I like the way you framed that. Um, you know, given the fact that this is a fairly, a, a fairly complex, you know, set of struggles and without knowing a lot about her experience that I'd give just a couple of general um, pieces of feedback. One is to not know, to, to know that you aren't alone in this at all. So I know that you're Absolutely. feeling terrible. 
you're not alone. The second thing is to really take a look at when you're saying 70% of the time I eat healthy. I wonder about what healthy means to you. Is healthy balanced? Um, some people's definition of healthy um, is really kind of extreme. And I would also wonder, is healthy truly satisfying and satiating? So the bulk of the, the stuff that you're eating in the course of your day, are you satisfied and are you actually getting enough nutritionally of all of the different food groups and all the different macronutrients? So that's one thing I'd encourage the letter writer to think about. Um, the other, the other pieces of information I would give are resources for her to do a little bit of work on her own. And there are a couple of really trusted resources that I would love to share with this letter writer. I would love First to hear about those. Book. Yes. Oh, I've got them and I've limited myself. <laughs> so I, I, I have many resources, but I've limited myself to three. Um, the first is the book intuitive eating written by Evelyn Tripley and Elise Resch, which totally transformed my way of thinking about food and the trajectory of my career over a decade ago. Um, the second is a book written by Michelle May, and it's entitled Eat What You Love and Love What You Eat. And then the third book is written by Karen Koenig, um, I'm not exactly sure how she pronounces her last name. It's K-O-E-N-I-G. And the book is called Starting Monday. And I really believe that there are going to be some gems and some specific strategies in each of those books to help her um, start to navigate through this. And then the last piece of information I would really encourage her to try to think about is to try to notice what's happening in her body as opposed to what's happening in her brain. And the more she can move out of the busy, busy, busy judgment, arguing back and forth in her brain and try to notice what her body's communicating to her. And the more she can respond based on what her body's telling her, um, she's going to start moving along in the right way in, in a path that's going to feel a lot better. And the amazing thing is that once we take all of that judgment and criticism and, and moralistic thinking out of our beliefs about food, there's so much clarity that our body can gives up, give us. And the amazing thing is, is that our body really craves balance. And um, moving through some of the muck and some of the stuff that's going on in her head is going to help her to be able to get there. Oh, that's so fabulous. I think it just is such a wise way of looking at it to maybe even just rewrite her definition of healthy eating and to trust her body because it'll bring it, it'll bring her body to the balance that she's craving and it'll feel calmer once she does trust what her body's telling her. So yep. thank you so much. And all those resources I'm going to put in the show notes and I'll make them a part of the food peace syllabus. And the food peace syllabus, of course, is just this wonderful list of resources that if you're trying to reclaim your relationship with food and your body to help you to navigate that course. And so I'll add those to them. And we appreciate your insights so much, Marcy, and appreciate your time. And I look forward to future writings from you on food addiction as the uh, science expands, but, you know, keep me posted on things, okay? Oh, I will. Oh, thank <laughs> you so much for uh, for having me. And I'm always eager to engage um, with people via social media. So awesome. feel free to holler out on Twitter or Facebook. It's Marcy R.D., M-A-R-C-I-R-D. And uh, thank you so much for keeping this conversation going, Julie. And thank you so much for having me. Of course. Great. And we will put um, links to Marcy in the show notes too, so you can connect to her. And um, take care, Marcy. All right. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. 
So I hope by listening to Marcy's advice, letter writer, I do hope you feel less alone and I hope you felt Marcy's virtual hug she sent your way because what it sounds like you need is some peace of mind that you are not alone and some kindness. Your brain doesn't appear to be very kind to you. And if there's a way to quiet it for a moment and look within, I think that's where the answers are. I think your body knows what it needs. And besides variety and balance and moderation, you know, the typical definition that we hear for healthy eating, healthy eating also includes satiety and pleasure. Those are all part of how we as humans have evolved to be able to stay alive. So denying all of the components will make things feel a bit bonkers. So I see that food has written you back. So let's go ahead and hear what food has to say. Take care. Dear Addicted to Sugar and Carbs, we think it is time for you to refine your definition of healthy eating. Healthy eating is balanced and pleasurable. We encourage you to give yourself permission to enjoy Nutella and ice cream, chips and Twizzlers, and all the rest. Making peace with this connection may give you the balance with food you so crave. Do take care. Love, food. Thank you for listening. I am Julie Duffy Dillon, and this is a Love Food Podcast. Do you want access to more food peace? Jump on over to my website and join my email list. There, I share exclusive content that I don't share anywhere else. Get access to these tips and strategies by going to juliedillonrd.com forward slash sign up. And I look forward to seeing you here next week for another episode of the Love Food Podcast. Take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.